Good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Need to Wake Up. And the subtitle is Only When You Awake Will You Realize That You Have Been Asleep to Life. So the first question we have to face tonight is, do you think that you are awake right now? You don't have to get philosophical on me, you can just (laughs) answer the question, right? We do think we're awake right now. Well, you are not. (laughs) According to the wise, we are asleep in a dream right now. The mind dreams virtually all the time. For example, have we ever been at the airport and watched people passing by? Did we ever get the feeling they were moving in their sleep, all in a dream of being somewhere else, doing something else? The mind dreams amongst material items when it is so-called awake, and amongst sense impressions when asleep. Time always passes quickly in a dream. Do we sometimes wake up for a moment and it's Monday and the next thing we notice that it's Saturday? Or we wake up and we're 21 and the next thing we are 51 and checking the pension to see if we can retire early, which really shows you're in a dream. Or it seems only yesterday that our daughter had pigtails and now you're walking her down the aisle to get married. Well, according to Scripture... We are asleep in the dream of our life. In the Bhagavad Gita it says, The sage is awake when the world sleeps, and he ignores that for which the world lives. So just for a moment, I want you to think of all the things you live for, that you think are really important, and God, they really add to my life. The sage ignores them all, as totally and completely valueless. Buddha is said to have awakened, and the word Buddha literally means the awakened one. So what was it that he awakened from? And to what did he awaken? Shakespeare said, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. The Shankaracharya, the man that the school of philosophy put all his questions to, he said, the whole universe itself is like a dream. The waking state is nothing more than a long-time dream-like state. You know, we have dreams at night, and we have short daydreams, say, during the day. But there's normally an 80-year or 85-year dream, which we call my life. And it's just a dream. Elsewhere he says, but this so-called waking state is not the real awakened state from all philosophical points of view. Thus, real awakening is achieved through higher reason. And when one reaches the level of true knowledge, then all these lower states are felt to be dreamlike. The Christian year begins with Advent, and the lesson for the first day in Advent is taken from St. Paul and begins with these words, Now is the time to rise from sleep. 
Now, the mind may protest. I mean, it may be protesting right now, but I am awake. Like, I can hear what he's saying, so I am awake. However, we can dream we are awake. In lots of our dreams, we are awake, doing lots of things. So maybe we are dreaming now that we are awake attending a philosophy lecture. <laughs> Only when we truly wake up will we realize that we have been asleep. Now, is there a need to wake up? Are we not fine as we are? Well, a madman sees strange things and thinks strange thoughts and does strange acts. And so does a drunkard. And so does a man who's not properly awake. This life is going nowhere. It's from dust to dust with a modicum of entertainment in between. <laughs> but it's from dust to dust. The main reason why we need to wake up is because the purpose of our life is to wake up out of the dream. To go home to our true self and break free from our entanglement in the creation. Socrates described it as follows. When the soul contemplates in herself and by herself, then she passes into another world the region of purity and eternity and immortality and unchangeableness, which are her kindred, and with them she ever lives, when she is by herself and is not let or hindered. Then she ceases from her erring ways, and being in communion with the unchanging, is unchanging. Now imagine that there's another world and anybody can go there. It is the birthright of the human being to live in this other world and according to Socrates there's no death in this world. It's a world of eternality. There's no divisions, there's no war, there's no deprivation. And when you live there he says, you cease from your erring ways. You'll never make another mistake. Imagine that. would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Now, we don't know ordinarily about this other world, so we try to make the best use of this one. So we go scuba diving off the south coast of America somewhere. Or, you know, we take all sorts of long holidays, all sorts of things to try and make the best of this. It's like trying to make the best of hell. You know, getting a room with a view in hell or something like this. You know. <laughs> so there is this other world. And we do not live there, but it is our true home. In the Bible, it is referred to as the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fell. And how did they fall? They fell asleep. They fell asleep to true knowledge and instead they got the knowledge of good and evil and their effects. If we wake up, we go back to the Garden of Eden. 
Now a man who is hungry and goes into a dream may dream that he eats to his heart's content. But when he wakes up he's still hungry. Because dream food cannot satisfy real hunger. So the question is, are you really satisfied in life? And if you're not, maybe you've been eating dream food, which doesn't satisfy real hunger. It may explain why we are never really fully satisfied, why we always want more, and why true and substantial happiness eludes us. On waking up, we would live in a different world and be fully satisfied. We would see that we are not this dreamlike image of ourselves. We are not six foot tall with a selection of strengths and weaknesses. We are consciousness, knowledge and bliss. We are free, ever peaceful, eternal, not reliant on anything and unmoved by anything. And Jesus said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forgoes his life? Well, asleep we forgo our lives, and this is why we need to wake up. Now, when do we go asleep? Was there ever a period in our life that we were awake? And the answer is yes. It was the first two years of your life. And you were wide awake. And the world adored you. Because you were awake. For the first two years of the human life, the little child lives in a different world. It's the divine world. There they live as themselves. Free of the knowledge of good and evil and their effects. And this is why the child enjoys simplicity and happiness. And this is why they shine. Children express what they feel honestly and fully. They are not afraid to show love and love easily, accepting themselves and people as they are. They do not judge and are just themselves. They see everything at its best. Daddy and mummy are godlike. You could be an absolute Egypt. Right? And that child still thinks you're godlike because you know everything and you can fix everything. And just like God on the sixth day of creation, they look out and they see that it is very good. They don't see bits of the creation as good or very good. They see it all, without exception, as very good. Young children live in the eternal now. And thus the past and future have no hold over them. As adults, we live in time. And the past and future dominate us. Everything for them is new and interesting. And nothing repeats itself. No matter how many times they tell the same joke, it's still funny. Imagine that you only need one joke <laughs> to laugh your entire life. However, around the age of two, all the traits held in the heart begin to become active. And as they begin to operate, he or she goes asleep. 
By the time he's 16, ordinarily he's fully asleep and sleeps for the rest of his life. We say that about teenagers, but it applies to (laughs) the entire of humanity, right? Now, there are some factors which compound this. The child is full of faith, it's full of devotion, and for a period of its life, it cannot reason. So, to start with faith. His faith means that he believes what he is told. He simply takes what is presented to him without any capacity to reject it. And this happens particularly with regards to those he loves, i.e. parents and teachers. And since the parents and teachers are asleep, they teach him to fall asleep. But the worst thing that can happen to you in life is to get parents and teachers. The mother has her image of the child, which is not what he really is. The father, likewise, has an image, but it's a different image of the child. And it's also not what he really is. And the teacher will have a third image, and it's not what the child really is. They're all different images, and they're all untrue. And they each tell the child who he is, according to the image they hold of him. And the child, on an increasingly confused basis, believes them. He thinks because they are adults, what they say must be true. He thinks surely they know more than I do. They tell him that he's bad when he does certain things, and that he needs to do better at other things, and that he would be a failure if he doesn't do A or B. He knows that he's perfect, but the adults keep telling him differently. He then thinks... I should be different than I am, which is the worst curse that you can put on yourself, that I should be different than I am. Slowly but surely, he leaves the world of being and enters the world of becoming. The fear arises that he's not good enough, and with that comes the fear of being rejected. So he tries to project an image that will please other people. He learns to pretend to be what he is not, just so that mummy and daddy and teacher and society at large will accept him. And having practiced the lies long enough, he now believes them. He learns how to behave and forgets how to be. He no longer lives in the world but instead in the world of other people's opinions. Somebody says he's ugly or stupid and he believes them. He learns what to believe and what not to believe, what is right and wrong and true and false, or what is beautiful or what is ugly. He's told how to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And none of these are actually true, but are the opinions of those who themselves fell asleep a long time ago. And having become educated by his parents and teachers and by society at large in what is good and what is evil, he walks out of the Garden of Eden. He stops living in the present and now he lives mostly in the past and the future. The connection of the mind to the physical world is lost 
And when the mind wanders to the past and the future, then it starts to create a world of its own. A dream world. And this dream world only exists in his mind. And it's a lonely world because he's the only person in it. There's nobody in your dream world. Everybody has one of their own. Right? So everybody else lives in their own private dream world. And living in the dream of your mind is the ultimate loneliness and the ultimate misery. You can try that if you want to. You can ask somebody who loves you or a best friend, would you like to live in my mind? <laughs> they would take hell before that. <laughs> now he gathers impressions from his experiences and these fill his memory. And he stops seeing people and things as they are and starts to experience things according to his opinions and memories of past experiences. And forgetting the truth about himself, he forgets about all others. And now everybody else becomes part of his dream world. And when he becomes a teenager, he's no longer not good enough for other people. Now he's not good enough even for himself. He loses his integrity and his authenticity and makes his decisions on the need to satisfy other people's opinions. As a teenager, he has not mastered this false image of himself. That's why it's so challenging to be a teenager. As an adult, you've sort of got it under control. But as a teenager, it's not. You're just developing it. And it seems to him as if everybody in the world can see through him and know that he is not who he pretends to be. As adults, we think we know others, but we only know our image of them. And this image of them is a projection of our image of ourselves. Being false, we find people disappoint us and they let us down. And the truth is, it's our expectations of them that let us down. And those expectations are based on our false image of them. Images that we created. In truth, we manufacture our own disappointments. And we believe we're supposed to be better than we are. The truth is we are already perfect. But forgetting that, we create an image in our minds based on what we are told. And we try to become that image, but fail. So perfection always eludes us. And we invest our life to try and attain this perfect image. And it is the worst investment we'll ever make. Think of Anglo-Irish shares and multiply it by a thousand. As regards devotion, his devotion means that he imitates. He wants to be like those that he's devoted to. So as a child, he wants to be like daddy or mummy. By the time he gets to 13, it's his worst nightmare. <laughs> with people would only stop telling me that I look like my father or I act like my father or mother. Now he absorbs their ideas and their emotional states and their values and their ways of behaving. Do you ever see a young child at a funeral? 
you know, say in the graveyard? What's he doing? Running around, kicking leaves, saying it's fantastic, another day off school. Wish more relatives would die. You know? <laughs> He's kicking dirt in. You know, say, can I throw some dirt and we cover up the box quicker? But he looks around and all he sees are these sad faces. So he learns. He learns to grieve. Imagine teaching a child to grieve. But he learns it. And by the time he's an adult, he's weeping at every funeral. This is all the good news, by the way. (laughs) So, devoted to those asleep, he adopts their way of life and goes asleep in the same fashion as they did. The third factor is the absence of reason. The absence of reason in the child means that he does not select or reject what is put before him. He simply absorbs his environment. He reflects the company he has kept, whether it be people, ideas or emotions, etc. So if he's fed the bad, he absorbs it. If he's fed the erroneous, he absorbs it. And if he's fed fear or misery, he absorbs it. So surrounded by the sleeping, he falls asleep. So being asleep to our true nature, which is consciousness, knowledge and bliss, how do we behave? Now there are two voices inside the human being. One is the voice of truth. And if you follow that voice, it leads you to perfect happiness, the perfect life. But there is another voice, and it's the voice of the ego, and it condemns you to misery and error. And this voice, you know the way sometimes a serial killer will say that this voice told me to slash me granny's throat or something like that, right? Well, that is exactly the same voice that you have in your head, except yours is slightly more benign. It says, put granny in a home. (laughs) Right. <laughs> where she'd be better cared for right? <laughs> but when we're asleep it's really only the voice of the ego that operates and the voice of the ego has two essential qualities and these are preference and judgment and this voice speaks to us all day long and we listen to it and we believe what it says. It then determines how we live and what our experience of life is. The voice of judgment and preference effectively controls our minds and hearts. And we say things we don't want to say and do things that we don't really want to do. So how often do we say yes when we mean no? How many cups of tea have you drunk that you didn't want to drink? How many times have we entertained doubt which stopped us doing what we knew in our hearts was the right thing to do? How many times have we got angry or stayed angry or broken a relationship because that voice said we should, that we should stand up for our rights? But the only result was our own misery. With regard to preference, there's only one world But with the emergence of preference, we divide the world. We divide it into three fundamental categories. What I like, what I do not like, 
and what I am indifferent to. And what I like, I seek out with all my energy. And what I dislike, I try to avoid. And everybody and everything I meet is stamped with approval, disapproval, or indifference. And then I react accordingly. When you walk down Grafton Street or any street and all these people are walking towards you, nobody gets by. Everybody is looked at and preferred and judged. I wouldn't have cut my hair like that. (laughs) God, those eyes are very close together. You couldn't... (laughs) I would never lend him any money. Everybody, everybody is judged. Nobody gets past. And you get past nobody. Imagine what they're saying about you. (laughs) And then we do the most amazing thing of all, which is so ignorant. We say, I refuse to be happy unless I get what I like. Imagine that. (laughs) I will not be happy unless I get what I like. And I only allow myself to be happy when I do get what I like. Isn't that sheer insanity? However, even when I do get what I like, it does not really satisfy me for very long. I think it's because I don't have enough of what I like. So I strive to accumulate more and more. But irrespective of how much I hoard for my own use, it never satisfies me. And as time passes, our preferences become more rigid, more deeply ingrained in our nature. And it is said that a man becomes old when his ideas become fixed. Some of us become old at a very early age. And this hardening of our preferences makes us more opinionated with the passing of time, more irritable, And less and less are our lives to our satisfaction. Things are simply not the way I want them to be. So there's the strength of the tea. There is nobody in the world that makes it just the way I like it. And then there's the temperature of the room. It's either too hot or too cold or how runny the egg is. I saw a man go berserk. in a a five star hotel because he'd asked for a three minute egg he obviously got a three minute fifteen second egg and it didn't run to his satisfaction and then there's the loudness of the music or the TV so you end up with two TVs now judgment the companion of preference is judgment and nothing escapes our judgment So compare how we look at ourselves in the mirror compared to a child looking at itself in the mirror. You know when you look at yourself in the mirror and you think to yourself, wasn't God kind when he assembled me? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't he bestow me with it all? I think I need a new mirror. (laughs) Now, if you were a child, age two, you could be Quasimodo with one eye in the centre of your forehead and, you know, and you'd be looking at yourself adoringly. What an eye! (laughs) You know? Because the child doesn't judge itself. Every child not only thinks, but knows that it is beautiful. 
at all levels of its being. But we judge ourselves. We're not perfect. And so, in effect, we reject ourselves. We want everybody else to accept us, but we reject ourselves. And devoid of self-acceptance, the need for acceptance by others becomes a desperate need. We succumb to peer pressure or fashions or fads just to be accepted. We want to fit in, but not fit in too much. Because at the same time we want to be different so that we're noticed. And the less the self-love, the greater the need for acceptance by others. So we will even harm ourselves just to be accepted. So as teenagers we'll take up smoking or excessive drinking or taking drugs or drive too fast just to avoid being rejected. And we create an image of ourselves that we hope will please others. And it can be quite desperate maintaining this image because we know it's false. We know that we are not that confident and not that sure of ourselves. And as said before, we worry that others can see through this image. And because there are many people that we associate with, and we want to please them all, or at least the vast majority of them, we have to have many images. So there's an image for the lads in the rugby club. That's one image. Then there's another one for the children. It doesn't drink as much as the one in the rugby club, or it certainly doesn't curse like the one in the rugby club. And then there's another one for the bank manager. And there's another one for the client. You pretend to be interested in them. (laughs) And when we meet people, we classify them immediately and decide on the appropriate image to project. The image is determined by who we believe they are and what they would find acceptable. And as I said, like a quick change artist, we become the lad at the rugby club, the prudent borrower in the bank manager's office, the family man in the presence of the mother-in-law. And in front of our mother-in-law, we never discuss euthanasia or anything disgusting like that. (laughs) Very important to be dead against euthanasia if you want to stay in the will, right? There's words of wisdom for you. Ordinarily, when we meet people for the first time, we want to find out that person's details so we can fit them into our dream. You know when you meet people for the first time and they ask you a whole series of questions, you think, God, they're really interested in me. (laughs) They're not interested in you at all. They just want to know which box to put you in. (laughs) So they ask you, what do you do and where do you live and do you have any children? And then as soon as they finish asking you questions, they tell you all about their dream. And then they compare their dream to our dream, and they're either smug with superiority or envious with the feeling of inferiority. Now, knowing we are not this image that we project, we feel false and dishonest and frightened. Frightened that somebody will see behind the mask. And this is why we sometimes hate the silences. It is easier to stay behind the mask if we keep talking. And eye contact is only fleeting because we know they are the windows to our soul. 
You know, sometimes a little child, maybe a child and a baby in a pram, you know, sometimes a child will just look at you. You know, it just looks and it looks and it looks. Now, if you can look at an adult in the same way, for the same length of time, you have nothing to hide. (laughs) But what you'll find is you look away quickly. We are hiding from the world by pretending to be who we are not. Ultimately, we're hiding from ourselves. And these social masks are so painful to wear. It's just too painful to let people see us as we are. We don't have the courage to really let them in. We know it and it sickens us. Occasionally, and I've used this example before, just occasionally we get onto a train on our own and somebody sits down beside us and they start to talk to us. And we've nothing to protect. They don't know us. They're never going to meet us again. And we start to talk freely and openly, intimately. And we tell them all about ourselves, maybe secret fears or aspirations, the career we really wanted to choose, and all these things. And just being yourself, the relief is colossal. For a while we're honest and not trying to be somebody or impress anybody. And then we get off the train and the mask is put on again. And it's normally on again before we leave the station. And we're so unsure of ourselves, we express a positive opinion. Let's say about a book or a movie. Let's say you 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 went to a movie last night and there was some Peruvian film that you went to. And you say to people, God, it was fantastic, you know, so subtle. <laughs> which meant that there was no storyline to the thing at all it was just a series of images but anyway you say it was so subtle and then somebody in the little crowd that you're saying this to says I saw that film and it was the greatest load of rubbish I have ever seen and what do you do? you tone down your statement you say well it did fade a bit towards the end <laughs> Because you don't want to be on the outside as the only person in the world who enjoyed this Peruvian film other than the director's mother. (laughs) So all the time we are projecting ourselves and then modifying ourselves depending on the reactions we get. We do so much to please others but other people are so busy doing likewise they do not even notice how much we do for them. So they are ungrateful. And we are bitter that after all we do, they're not even grateful. They don't even notice. If we were awake, we would all see everything as it is truly. Because we're all dreaming, that is projecting our inner world on the outer world, we all see it differently. A thousand people see the same event in a thousand different ways. Every night, we put down the dream of our life to go to sleep. It's the time we're most happy when you put down the dream of your life. And then we are no longer a product of our mind. We are no longer this or that. We simply are. But then we awake and we have to get up and dress ourselves. 
the tragedy is we just don't dress ourselves physically but we dress ourselves mentally and emotionally so you could have slept like a lord but if you're a moody person you're already moody by the time you get to the shower who took the bloody gel (laughs) that's my gel which suits my sensitive skin imagine that imagine sleeping so peacefully and being a moody person 30 seconds after you wake up and then being moody for the rest of the day well having told ourselves the lies over and over again we end up believing them and the voice of judgment says appalling things to us it says that's the way you are imagine that condemned alright or even this most ridiculous statement I'm only human if you knew what a human being was you could never put the word only in front of it or tells you that you're not good enough or intelligent enough or tells you to not even try because you're bound to fail or tells you that nobody really loves you or understands you and this voice of judgment is incessant it judges what we do and what we don't do what we feel, what we say and also what everyone else feels, does and says the only conflict in the world is the conflict in the mind it is the conflict of ideas and this conflict is based on our knowledge of good and evil now we tell our spouse or our children how to walk and how to speak and talk and how to respond to us and the result is a war of wills having formed images of others we then try to make them behave according to our image so we all have an image as to how children should behave and I'm going to make them behave like that they of course are behaving according to their own self-image so ne'er shall the twain meet they want to stay true to their image so they resist all efforts by us to get them to conform to our image of them you know by the time you're say 16 you will even reject the reasonable advice of parents just to retain your own self image it's not that the teenager or the other human being prefers freedom they simply prefer their prison cell to yours this judgment means that nothing is ever right it's just not perfect we are always the wrong weight we're either too fat or too thin too hard or too soft and this particular image which we have developed costs a fortune to maintain because there's only particular designer clothes and particular cars and particular houses which really support this image that I have and I have to have these things then and we have an image of what perfection is but we don't match up to it and nobody else does either we're not even forgiving to ourselves for not fulfilling this image of perfection so we're most harsh on ourselves we can cover up our mistakes in relation to others or deny them in front of others but when on our own the voice of judgment reminds us in our silence of our unworthiness self-rejection arises because there's not self-love we love the image so-called but not ourselves 
self-rejection then becomes self-abuse. And because we don't love ourselves, we desperately need to be loved by others. And as a result, we hunt for love. If we loved ourselves, we simply would be happy to love others and would not have that pressing need to be loved by others. And we think, if only someone would love me, it would show that I'm worthy. However, these other people don't love themselves either. So they do not have the love to give to us, which we want so much. Not loving ourselves, we need to be noticed by others, to be appreciated by others, and to be accepted by others. So we are in a constant state of need, a constant state of want. And Jesus, in the Gospel of St. Thomas, I think said the harshest words imaginable from any being. He said, when referring to you and me, he said, you are in poverty. You are poverty. You're not just in poverty. You are poverty. Now, not loving myself, I find it difficult to be alone with myself. Being with others gets my attention off me and my life. And we find it impossible then, when with others, not to compare ourselves with others. And we're better than some and worse than others. And all these judgments are harsh and devoid of love and compassion. We let the memory of the past dominate the present. Somebody insulted us years ago, and we remember it. We try to pretend that we don't care what they think, but we do. And we carry it with us. And we punish ourselves over and over again by digging up our offence in our memory. And we double our misery by now disliking or hating the person who gave the offence. Real injustice is not the original offence, but paying for it over and over again. In truth, we are unjust to ourselves. How many times are we meant to pay for a mistake? How many times is our spouse to pay for his or her mistake? As many times as we remember. <laughs> That's how many times they'll pay. I've told this story before, but and it's a dreadful story in relation to me. It's not in relation to my wife, but on our wedding day, you know, when the music starts and you're meant to dance with your beloved new bride, but Eamon Cochrane was running in the 1500 metres in the Olympics and there was a very good chance that Ireland was going to win a gold medal. I was not going to miss it. <laughs> right? So while the music started, I was watching Eamon Cochrane come in fourth. Right? Anyway, I have paid for that. <laughs> you have no idea the suffering that has been inflicted on me for that moment of weakness. Our misery is always the fault of others. We blame the traffic, the weather, the credit card bill for causing us unhappiness. And because everything can and does cause us misery, we feel vulnerable. And we're afraid. And because we're afraid, we're cautious in life. If you don't think you're cautious in life, then ask yourself, do you live an adventurous life? And if you're so foolish as to think you are living an adventurous life, then just ask one of your children, do you think I live an adventurous life? 
And when they stop choking and writhing on the floor, <laughs> you know, and they tell you the truth about your life, then just realize it. You live a cautious life. And every one of you promised when you were really young that you would live an adventurous life. We are cautious in life and we don't give ourselves fully to others. So our relationships do not fully satisfy. We take precautions in the relationships so they were not exploited. But in truth, we are exploited but by our own self-generated fear. Because we try to retain our independence true relationship does not materialize. And because the other person can hurt me or make me unhappy, I have to control them to stop them making me unhappy. And this controlling only makes them love me less, which hurts me more. And so I try to control them even more. Albeit this dream of our life causes much unhappiness, we do not let it go. We are like addicts on a path to self-destruction. Consider all the things which we know are bad for us, which do not bring us happiness, and yet we do them. And all the things which we know are good for us, and yet we don't do them. We know we eat too much, and we exercise too little, and we work too hard, but do we stop? They are held on too dearly in the heart, and despite the mind knowing the right or wrong of these things, it proves to be ineffective as a basis for changing ourselves. The fifth factor which happens to the person who is asleep is that living in a dream world means that life which is universal now becomes personal. This is an incredible error to think that there is anything personal in this creation. This personal point of view is always changing. Our mood, who we are with, depending on what people say to us and how they relate to us. And as we get older, our image of ourselves changes. And so we have to then change the image that we had previously held of others. So there's the famous statement by, uh, I think it's George Bernard Shaw, and he said that when he was 18, he thought his father was stupid. And by the time he was 25, he was surprised how much his father had learned in the last seven years. <laughs> As our values change, our reactions to people and events change. Everything is experienced not as it is, but how it relates to our image of ourselves. Do you know that a person is small when they're smaller than us? And they're intelligent when they're more intelligent than us. And they are loud when they're not as quiet as us. If you were the only person in the world, you couldn't be small. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, there you are, two foot six, walking around like a giant. <laughs> this personal world is full of assumptions. We assume that people really like us, and we're wrong. We assume they really hate us, and we're also wrong. We think they're talking about us, and they're not the least interested. And what is personal is important, and it's much, much more important than it really is. So, for example, my feelings are very important. You need to take them seriously, because they're my feelings. And somebody denting my car, that's very important. Somebody denting somebody else's car, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> 
get over it, you know? Grow up, kid. And because we see everything personally, we don't really understand other people's actions and reactions because they're personal to them. We think they're overreacting. You know, somebody takes their car park space. Look at that. Imagine going berserk over a car park space being taken on you. But when we're overreacting, we never think we are. Because it's personal, you can never see it as they see it. Never. We see their situation differently. At best, we sympathize. But we don't really agree or understand. It's the equivalent of a man saying, you know, when he's got a toothache or something like that. So, I, I think I understand now what it's like to give birth to a child. <laughs> you know, it doesn't come near, as they say. Now, there is nothing personal in this creation. Your death is not even personal. It happens to everybody, so it couldn't be personal. <laughs> How people behave to us is nothing to do with us. There's nothing personal. It's when a person comes up to you and says, I think you are an idiot. There is nothing personal about that comment. People are not late because they want to hurt us. They are late because they don't have the discipline to be on time. It's nothing to do with us, and it's all to do with them. People who behave negatively are simply playing out their dream life according to their image. They play out the patterns of their lives just like we do with our lives. They learned it all from their parents, teachers and society just like we did. Taking things personally is to exaggerate the importance of everything. So positive things please us excessively and pride swells and negative things offend us and deflate us. And this is the second last factor of the life in a dream. This factor which emerges from this dream is responsibilities and responsibilities degenerate to duties and then they degenerate from duties to burdens and they end up as the things I have to do. So think of all the things we believe we have to do. You know when you say, I have to do something, you have the voice of a grave digger, as you say it. <laughs> right? It is devoid of happiness, lightness, or any of these things. So I have to do the dishes. And I have to earn a living. I have to pay a mortgage and I have to visit my mother and I have to bring the kids to piano. And with all these have-tos, life becomes serious and heavy. And we are only happy and light-hearted when we are doing the things we don't have to. So, in order that you don't go home and slash your throats, we, 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 we have to have a happy ending to this talk. How are we going to wake up? Because in this awakened state, just as Socrates described, there's none of what I've been talking about. There is only love. There's only peace. There's only freedom 
There's only wisdom. There's only unity. There's only bliss. So we need to realize that we are asleep in a dream and then strive to wake up. Unless we appreciate that how we see things and how we respond is based on an illusion, then nothing can happen. And the first thing we need to do is we need to value freedom. We need to value our freedom above all else. And this requires that we exercise our free will. That we stop living in our parents' dream, in society's dream, or even our own dream. Remembering that our essential nature is freedom, we need to use it. We need to get our life back. Do you remember in the film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Do you remember the big Indian? Do you remember that character? Fantastically built man. But all his life they had told him that he was small. So he lived in a lunatic asylum, thinking he was a small man. And if you remember that fantastic scene at the very end of the film where he rips out the, the water container thing and he bursts through the window and he runs for freedom. All of us are living in our own lunatic asylum. <laughs> right. Interesting enough, we all have the key. We don't have to do the big Indian trick, right? We just have to turn the key. As said earlier, Socrates refers to another world purity, eternity, immortality, unchangeableness. Now Moses called it the promised land. By the way, it wasn't sort of a couple of million acres somewhere in Israel or Palestine. That's not the promised land. Buddha called it Nirvana. Jesus called it heaven. And the Old Testament referred to it as the Garden of Eden. Now, they're all saying the same thing. And the question we have to ask ourselves as reasonable men and women is, could they have all got it wrong? Did all the master teachers of the world get it wrong and get it wrong in exactly the same way? All the great ones have said that it is possible for each and every one of us to awaken. And they've all issued us with an invitation to go home to freedom. And we need to accept the invitation and make this decision to go home. It is our birthright. Every human being has the right to be free. So stop trying to become somebody and drop all the have-tos. Stop having to be anybody. Stop conforming and get back your integrity. The Shankaracharya said, in order to be what you are, you have to come out of what you are not. And Jesus said, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So we need to rediscover the truth about ourselves and we don't have to wait to die to go to heaven. We can be in heaven right now. The second thing that we need to do is we need to bring a discipline into our lives. We need to bring the mind into the present moment because the mind cannot dream in the present moment. It is awake in the present moment. And the simplest way to be in the present moment is to connect with the senses. 
And most of us are blessed with five of them. And each one of them anchors you in the present moment. Because you can't taste a future strawberry. Or you can't taste a past strawberry. So if you're tasting strawberries right now, you are awake. You're in the present moment. The second aspect of this is we need to cultivate silence. But an inner silence. Do you know... Have you ever been in an exam room with sort of, you know, these colossal exam rooms of 500 students and they're all... Nobody's talking, but there's no silence in the room. You recognize that? Have you ever gone to Glendalough, let's say, or a place with a spiritual history? And there's a silence there, which is not the silence of the exam hall. And it's not the silence of a graveyard. It's a different silence. And you become silent. So stop chatting to ourselves all the time. Filling our minds with noise. You know sometimes when you look into a car that's at the traffic lights beside you, as a person, their lips are moving. There's no Bluetooth in their car, you know that, right? There isn't that mobile phone in sight. They're just talking to themselves. Now, forget about the external talking to ourselves. Most of us manage to control that in company. But it's the silent talking to ourselves. It's as the person is talking to us and we're talking to ourselves. Back to them. Jesus, when he get to the end of that story? (laughs) Or whatever it is. If you cultivate this inner silence, then you will come out of the dream and see what is here now. The third factor is that we need to discriminate between these two voices. The voice of the ego and the voice of the self. The voice of the self is simple and true and unifying. And the voice of the ego is complex, untrue and divisive. And recognizing the difference in the sound, we then ignore all that this voice of the ego says. And the thing we need to appreciate is that it cannot speak the truth. Every word it speaks is a lie. So you never pay any attention to it. If it says to you that the person in front of you is very, very nice, that is a lie. Human beings are much, much, much more than very nice. It'd be like saying to your children, I kind of love you. It is the ego which says, I love you a lot. Children just say, I love you. And it is so much more than a lot. It never speaks the truth. It simply prefers and judges. And plausibility is its favourite tool. Stop believing that we cannot be totally happy all the time. Stop believing that we're not perfect. Stop believing that we're not worthy of love. Stop believing in all these imagined limitations which we superimpose on ourselves. Again, do you remember that fantastic film, A Beautiful Mind? And with Russell Crowe, and I think he, he played the part of John Nash, who was a famous physicist, I think who won the Nobel Prize. Anyway, John Nash had certain mental disorders which caused him to imagine people who were not there. And he believed in them. So I think there was a little girl, and there was a CIA recruitment agent, and I can't remember who the third character that he believed in. And this troubled him, and he had breakdowns and was incarcerated for a while and all of that. 
But towards the end of the film, then there's this incredibly beautiful scene where he transcends the limitations of these imagined creatures. And how he did it was a very, very intelligent use of his very, very intelligent mind. Was He worked out that he had been seeing these people for 30 years and they hadn't aged. That the little girl was still a little girl, but he was 30 years older. And reason told him that she couldn't be real. She couldn't be true. Isn't that fantastic? His own reason helped him escape this hell. Well, you and I have all these imagined people in our dream world and are not true. What we believe about ourselves is the all-determining factor in how we experience our lives. If we believe we can't, then we can't. The truth is we are spirit, not matter. We are free, not bound. We are full of bliss, not misery. And we're eternal, not transient. And once we stop believing all these lies about ourselves, then we will stop believing them about everybody else. And then all that we have projected on them ceases. And we will see everybody and everything as it is. Ultimately, higher reason or discrimination is to do with separating the eternal from the transient, the true from the untrue, our real self from the imaginings of the mind. And on this separation, the belief in the dream is broken, never to emerge again. The fourth factor, and the most important of all, is meditation. Why is meditation so important? It's important for every human being without exception because it undoes the dream. And how does meditation undo the dream? It's because it brings man to the highest state of consciousness. And in the highest state of consciousness, there can be no dream. There can only be reality. The fifth factor is be true to yourself. Forget what other people think. Forget what that voice of the ego thinks. Forget about being as accepted or rejected. And forget all the ignorance which we've inherited from those asleep. And be true to ourselves. And sixthly, stop taking things personally. This will bring peace and harmony to your life. And the ignorant behaviour of people will stop affecting you. You'll cease to be irritated. You'll stop getting insulted and anger will disappear. And you'll become patient with the world. And the last factor is self-examination. And Carl Jung said, Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakens. So, look inside yourself. Look inside your own mind and your own heart and see what's there and what's operating. Examine all that we believe and ask ourselves, why do we believe that? Why do we believe that death is a bad thing? Or it's better to be rich than poor? Or it's an advantage to be good looking? All of these things. What is the authority for the belief? If you examine all that you hold in your mind and all that you hold in your heart, whatever does not yield happiness, freedom, bliss, etc., stop believing in it. 
So if death doesn't make you happy, stop believing in it. Take scripture and the words of the wise to be true, and anything in opposition to them is false. And we have to decide at some stage in our lives the ground we're going to stand on. Is it going to be what this voice of preference and judgment says, or this other inner voice which only speaks of unity? And it is this other inner voice which speaks as Scripture speaks, or as the wise speak. So what is life like in the awakened state? What would it be like to be awake, truly awake in the philosophical sense? Well, the real waking state is the conscious state, in which we know what is true and what is not true. Once we have acquired knowledge and understanding of this, there is no fear and there is no attachment, because we know what is there and there is no worry. The real waking state is that state of consciousness in which one sees things as they are. What will life be like then? Well, nobody, but nobody will control us. And we will stop trying to control others and our lives but will now go with the flow. We will no longer judge ourselves or others. We will then accept ourselves as we are now. We stop trying to prove ourselves to anybody or improve ourselves before we can love ourselves. We are free from guilt and shame and anger and jealousy. We stop being a victim. There's no more conflict in our lives. And we make our own choices. And because we do, we choose peace and freedom and love. And we choose to be happy. And because we choose to be happy, we are happy. And we express it everywhere, rather than spending our lives searching for it. Everywhere. And we're no longer afraid to be me. Or afraid of what other people think. We're no longer afraid of losing of exploring life. We're no longer afraid of living. We're no longer afraid of dying. We're no longer afraid of anything. We're no longer cautious with our lives, and particularly with our love. We now love everybody and everything, and we're not afraid to say it. We see that everybody else is in a dream, and we see the truth. And we are now like the magician who cannot be fooled by his own trick. And how will we know when we are awake? Because maybe we could be in a dream thinking we're awake. So how will we know? Well, when there is constant peace, when there is constant love and constant freedom and constant happiness without limit in our lives, when we experience life as the sages do, when this prayer of the wise becomes a living reality for us. When the wise look out of the world, they say, this is perfect. That is perfect. Perfect comes from perfect. Take perfect from perfect, and the remainder is perfect. Peace, peace, peace. Now, at the end of this talk, there are three options which each one of you face. You can dismiss what has been said as poppycock or impractical. You can go into a dream about how wonderful life would be in the awakened state, 
but do absolutely nothing about it or you can wake up and live it and the choice is yours so that's it thank you So, what would you like to ask? My question is around, you very much put it forward that we should be seeking the Garden of Eden, that place where everything is perfect. But don't you think that if we lived in a world that was that kind of ignorant bliss, there would be no growth? We need conflict to learn, to grow, we need the mistakes. Are you not missing these within your argument? No. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, there are two possible ways, you could say, to grow. One is the way that you've said, and that's, say, true conflict or difficulty. And that is valid. That does produce growth. But love also produces growth. And so does happiness. A person who is happy loves to express themselves in limitless ways, in new ways, ever seeking new ways to reveal that happiness. So, work can be motivated by desire, or it can be motivated by love. And love is far, far stronger than desire. Most of the world undertakes activities in the pursuit of happiness. So that you ask people, why do you want to be an engineer? And they say, because they'd like to be happy. Which shows you how delusional they are. But anyway, they want to be happy. So they think they will find happiness by expressing themselves in engineering. Now, this is not true. There is no happiness in engineering. <laughs> and even more so in being a solicitor. There's just no happiness in that. However, what the wise do is they decide to be happy and then express that happiness everywhere. They're not in search of it. They're just expressing it. And they express it everywhere. What you'll find is that when you're miserable or you know, sad or something like that, you'll find that you're less prone to activity and creativity. You tend to curl up in a little ball and wish somebody would care for you. So living in a blissful, perfect state does not restrict creativity or expression or anything like that at all. It actually lends the power to it. A person who has love in their heart or happiness in their heart is filled with energy. And a person who has both happiness and misery, has less energy, and a person who has misery has very little energy. Do you want to follow it on? I know, just from the work I do, I work with a lot of people who have a lot of emotional problems, and we would always associate the word opportunity and crisis. It just seems to me that I can see, yes, you can be motivated by love. I love my girlfriend. I want to go out and do something nice for her. And the other side of it, then, I got in a fight with my girlfriend over yeah. something, but I could learn from the fight that I shouldn't have done what I did. Or so, so, so it's only when the relationship is in a real crisis that you're very nice to her. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're about to split up. Do you want to go to the French restaurant? <laughs> no, I, no, I, I'm only joking. No, you, you, are, you are right. Let me just say, you are right. But what you are doing is that ordinarily when adversity hits us, we tend to withdraw or avoid it or whatever it is. What you're saying to people is 
that in adversity or crisis, there is opportunity. There's opportunity for growth and all these things. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So, if adversity comes your way, make use of it to grow as a being. I've told the story a million times, and I'm only just going to tell the, the very, very, very shortened version of it. But when I was a young man, a girlfriend that I loved died. Right? And it was horrendous. Just horrendous. But that experience made me a much stronger man. Albeit it was an adverse set of circumstances, the truth of it, Shamewell Hall came out, a, let's call it, a bigger, more mature, better man because of it. So yes, where there's crises or adversity, you always make use of it. But you're not dependent on crises or adversity for growth. It can come for there be love in your heart. So compassion, for example, can lead to growth. Where you're moved by the misery in another to relieve the misery in the other person. So, I can't remember the man who started that organisation who takes care of the homeless. He was moved by compassion to do something. Now, compassion is a form of love. If he hadn't had love in his heart, he would have done nothing. But because of the love in his heart, in the form of compassion, a new charity was formed which does great work. And happiness can do it as well. As I said, when you're happy, you're happy to do more things. And when you're miserable, you you can curl up in a ball. So, you are right, but if you were saying that it's necessary, or it is the sole source of growth, no. And what I would say to you is, the man who is perfectly happy, or whose heart is filled with love, does not need adversity. If that's okay. Thank you. You said that a child, a two-year-old or less in years, would have the capacity or the ability to look lovingly at their parents and yeah. uh, stare them out of it or whatever you want to call it. Before There's a better way of saying it than you just <laughs> anyway. Well, it's only from the adult perspective this yeah. thing. But they haven't as yet learned the how to be asleep by mimicking their parents or mimicking yeah. society or whatever. Would you imagine if a child was isolated on a desert island that it would ever learn to fall asleep? It would. Mind? It would. And yeah. if so, why? Why have we as humans got this mechanism that starts us off so perfectly then puts us asleep and then you have to wait so many years to come to a lecture or listen to the Bible to tell you to waken up absolutely well it's like why does a man who's perfectly healthy fall ill if he's perfectly healthy let's say for the first 20 years how does an illness come upon him because it was latent in his being so the young child all the traits of the ego are dormant. Not its entire nature now, because if you look at a number of two-year-olds, you can see that they have different natures and different temperaments. But the limiting ideas and all of those sort of things are latent, and they awaken. They awaken. But what wise parents can do, and wise teachers can do, is not put something into the child, but only draw out of the child what is good and useful and conducive to their happiness and a full life. If you are a parent that's not so wise, or a teacher that's not so wise, then, because of your own ego, you will draw out the good and the bad, let's say, or the useful and the not so useful in the child. If you're a wise parent, you only draw out that which is useful. And if the child can live in an environment, let's say for 16 years, whereby only the goodness is developed in its being, 
after 16, it can deal with any badness that emerges in its vein, any weakness, because it has developed all its strengths. Does that make sense? You know, it makes great sense, but it's not, well, maybe I'm not asking the question properly. I'm just wondering if we're made in the image and likeness of God yes. and all the rest of this. You wonder why we have this built-in time bomb that will set you asleep at the age of three and it needs some kind of awakening later on. And even in as far as if you consider Jesus to be a good teacher or a great philosopher or son of God, you see things like, and I'm not particularly religious myself, yes. but you see him losing his temper in the temple. No, you didn't see him lose his temper in the temple. No. No, but <laughs> It's very, very important that the likes of you and me judge a man's inner world by his outer actions. So when Hamlet kills his wicked uncle, let's say it's Laurence Olivier playing Hamlet, he doesn't actually hate the guy playing the uncle. It's an act for the sake of the play. So another possibility of the interpretation of that story is that that is an, an act for the sake of the onlooker only. But it is not a loss of temper. If you accepted, and I'm not asking you to, but if you accept that Jesus was the Son of God, it is not possible for him to lose the head. Right? So, they don't make sons of God like that anymore, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So your question remains, why? And why aren't they just born asleep rather than having the first two years? Yes because we would all put them up for adoption. <laughs> because they're so absolutely adorable, you care for them, and then you're hooked by year two. When they turn into little maniacs, you, <laughs> you feel a certain responsibility for a while. So only when they're aged about 43 do you ask them to leave home. Then that's <laughs> but the question you're asking is a very big question, Right? So, one answer I'm going to give you which will dissatisfy you, and then I'll give you another answer which might satisfy you. But what the Shankaracharya said, the man at the School of Philosophy put all his questions to, he said, everybody wants to know where ignorance came from, but what the wise will do will tell you how to end it. And when you end it, then you will know where it came from. But the ignorant cannot know where it came from, because they are ignorant. Only the wise know where it came from. He said the important thing is to know how to bring it to an end, not how it started. So that's one answer which will not satisfy you. <laughs> now, the other thing as well as this is you have to, this is certainly not a proof, but it points that if you saw a man, say on a Wednesday morning, and he said he had a hangover, all right, you would look to the cause of that hangover. And you say he must have been drinking the night before. And if he said he wasn't drinking the night before, you would know he was lying. Or if you saw a man, I'll just completely exaggerate, and he's 45 stone, you can take it that he has been eating in the past. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'll work that one out. This man has eaten, or overeaten in the past. Because it's not possible to get a 45 stone body unless there has been a, a, quite a large consumption of food. So, every effect has a cause. Now, if somebody has accumulated anger in their being, let's say quite a lot of anger, then it has a cause, because the anger is an effect. It might be the cause of something else, but in itself it is an effect. So what is the cause? And there are three common explanations that are given. One is that it's genetic. 
it's the mother's side of the family that's to blame. <laughs> right? Yeah. They, no. <laughs> it's genetic. Not only do you inherit your body, the makeup of your body from your parents, but you also inherit mental and emotional characteristics of your parents. And that is, let's say, a materialist view. And it could be right. It's not what the sages say, but it could be right. The other view is, let's say, the religious view, Judaic, Christian, Muslim view, is that it is inexplicable. It's the will of God. Why one person should be blessed with anger, another person should be blessed with equanimity. It can't be explained, but God will make it up in the fullness of time. Which requires a ginormous amount of faith and really doesn't stand to reason. I mean, if you had two children and you said to one of them, well, I'm going to beat the living daylights out of you for the first 16 years of your life, and then I'm going to make it up to you, and the other chap I'm going to love for the first 16 years of his life and just beat the living daylights out of him afterwards, you would think you had a maniac of a father. And you'd be right. (laughs) But some people believe that. Since their mind will not yield an answer, they just say, I cannot understand God's will, but since I believe in a loving God, there must be a loving answer. Which is fair enough, but it doesn't really satisfy. And the third possibility is the theory of the other major religions and philosophies, which is reincarnation. That traits in the being are from past experience. So that if there's anger in the being, it's because anger has been practiced. And since it's only a child, it must have been practiced in a previous embodiment. So they are the three. And you have to find out which one is true. And it is possible to find out. So you can know which is true. Something similar to what that gentleman said. Do you think in an instance like what you're saying, at two years of age, if the parents not being conditioned towards the children with their own stuff, if they let that manifest, could they fulfill themselves? If their spirit would be from two onwards allowed to flow and the parents adhere to what the, the evolution in the children that you think there'd be a pureness of spirit then? Well, you're asking me what I think, so I'm going to give you an answer based on what I think. The traits are in the being, and they will awaken. So, even if you had wise parents, you don't get a free ride. The traits have to be dealt with. But under the protection of wise parents, and let's say there's wise teachers, then the child can be helped to grow sufficiently in strength that it deals with it as an adult, or it can be transcended when the child is a child. So, I'm just going to tell a story, and it's just about one of my children, and it just gives an example. It would be impossible to say that the mull halls are quiet. So this is, you know, nobody has ever said it about us. And if you come into our household, it's rather a loud household, and everybody wants the microphone, and everybody wants to speak, other than one daughter. So there are six of us in our household, and Jessica is the youngest. And she has a very, very quiet nature. A delightful nature, but it's on the quiet side. Or, and it's on the quiet side. Now, when she was young, it was not only quiet, it was fearful. So she would all the time be hiding behind her mother's skirt, and every opportunity to hide from any sort of social interaction or undertake anything, she would sort of run away from it. And I observed this. There's nothing wrong with having a quiet nature, but a fearful nature is going to lead to a small life. So, I wasn't going to let this just manifest or unfold. 
in those days, we used to take long holidays in France. And I would use the holidays to work with Jessica. So, and I, again, I've told the story before. Jessica is now age five. This very timid, fearful creature, but a very good nature. And so I would say to Jessica, now, I want you to order two cups of coffee for mummy and daddy. And then she would immediately leave the table and run behind her mother, right? And I would say, no, look, it's very simple. De café au lait. Which, by the way, is my entire French, in case, anybody, <laughs> in case any of you are impressed, right? So, de café au lait. So, she wouldn't want to do it, which meant that I had set the bar too high. So, what I would say, okay, you and me are going to get the coffee. So, just come with me. So, I would hold her hand. And I'd say, now, say it after me. De café au lait. And she'd say, de. And I'd say, okay, now, café. And she'd say, little café. And then, au lait. And she'd say it. And then, the coffee would come. And I would praise the coffee. say, fantastic coffee. Must be the way you're saying it. And excellent. And all of that. And after the first year, she was able to go up and say, de café au lait. And then, we are, uh, now, I'm going to do this a bit more French. She'd say, la décision, which is the bill. Say, do that. Or here, hand the man the credit card. And slowly but surely... This fear which was there, which as far as I'm concerned was not caused in this life, I couldn't point to any event or anything like that, got dissolved. So now we have a 22-year-old woman who I don't believe there's any fear of any substance in her being. But she didn't get a free ride. It had to be worked on. Now, but in the end, she had to say, de café au lait. You can't say it for her. So she had to work, albeit within a childlike capacity. So, if the traits are there, ultimately the person who has the traits has the responsibility to dissolve them. But they can be greatly helped by, let's say, wiser or wise parents or wise teachers or wisdom within society. And if you can rear a child, that its strengths, now its emotional and mental strengths and its talents are developed fully by age 16, then what you tend to find is a very glorious life. It's not trouble-free, because they still have to deal with the negative traits, but the strengths are so strong that they easily overcome them. And that's what you want. You can't promise, obviously, as a parent, a child, a trouble-free life. But you can equip it to face trouble, to deal with trouble. It's a bit like, you can go into life dressed as Rambo, you know? That's fantastic, because you can kill his, you know, most of your enemies people that are gifted and the parents mightn't see it in their children and there again you get other children that the parents bring their heart out and it manifests would you think that that would make children in in their adult years become awake? Well I think being awake and being talented are two different things. There are people who are asleep but magnificently talented in terms of the talents no amount of nurturing will instill greatness in the child. It will help draw out the greatness, but the greatness has to be there. So if you somebody, let's say, doesn't have a magnificent voice, you can send them to whatever voice teacher that you want to in the world. They will improve their voice, but they won't have greatness. I also believe that if somebody has the voice of Pavarotti, it will emerge anyway, even if you have parents who tell you to shut up all the time. It will emerge anyway. So real greatness cannot be suppressed. And real greatness cannot be created by another. Where people tend to suffer is people who are, let's call it, more in the middle bracket. So people don't reach their potential. So let's say 
I played rugby and I played at a level now, and I mean at a level, actually at a level, right? And uh, perhaps with better coaches and a few things, I could have played at a slightly higher level. But the talent to be, you know, an international or something like that, that wasn't there. And what's very, very important in terms of talents, and again, I'm just going to take it from the Bible, is we tend to envy the person who has all the talents. But the Bible is very, very specific, and it tells the story of the talents, and the talents is money, but it it can be used as uh, talents as well, where one person is allocated one talent, another person is allocated three, and another person is allocated five. And the person who's allocated five turns it into ten and comes back to the master and tells him. And he says, excellent, my good and faithful servant. And the one who got the three and he turned it into six gets exactly the same praise. He says, oh, my good and faithful servant. And then the one who got the one and buried it out of fear, he takes the elevator down to the hot place. Right? So, what that story is telling you is, it is not... You are no less a man if you, a woman, if you turn three talents into six as compared to somebody who turns five into ten. Because you have fulfilled your destiny. That is the important thing. You never, ever, ever compare yourself to another human being. And you never, ever, ever compare one human being to another. This is a disgusting thing to do. Everybody is glorious in their own right. They just have to find their glory. And some of us find our glory in speech. And some of us find it in quietude. Some of us find it by listening. There's all sorts of ways. And so it's for each person to be true to themselves. So the one with one just needed to turn it into two. I to express it gloriously. The one with three needed to express it gloriously, which would have turned it into six, and the one with five into ten. That's very, very important. We tend to measure people according to an absolute level. And sometimes we do override it. So, I don't know if any of you were at the Special Olympics. Anybody here at the Special Olympics? Okay. Well, anyway, I was at a part of the Special Olympics, and it was incredible. It was incredible, because you could not deny the Olympic spirit for people who are running the 100 yards in about 25 seconds. And you could not say they were less an athlete than Usain Bolt who can run it in 9.76 or whatever it is. For, let's call it a special needs person to run it in 25 seconds, that is outstanding. For Usain Bolt to run it in 12 seconds is incredibly disappointing and in 9.76 seconds it's outstanding. So they're both equal. That's very, very important, both in terms of one's own perception of oneself and one's perception of others. I just wanted to get your view on, would altruism be the absolute right direction and put all beliefs, technically put all the beliefs together, and simplify matters to one direction, which would be altruism, and would that be the solution? Everybody heads in the direction of altruism. Well, first of all, it would solve what we call the problems of the world. I think it's uh, Tolstoy said that man's happiness lies in his service of humanity. That his own happiness lies in the service of humanity. Normally we try to serve others to make them happy or happier. But he actually says that man's own happiness lies in the service of others or let's say altruism. 
the design of this creation is people don't like the word dependent. Nobody wants to be dependent. So we all seek independence. Because if we don't like one, we, want, we think the opposite is where the goodness lies. But what the wise say is that this is an interdependent creation. There cannot be mother without child. We often think that the child is dependent on the mother. But to be mother, you're totally dependent on the existence of a child. The doctor is completely dependent on the patient. No patient, you cannot function as doctor. This is an interdependent creation. And because it is interdependent, those who have surplus should freely give that surplus to others. This is why, well there are a number of reasons, but it's one of the reasons why the cow is revered in India. Because not only does it provide enough milk for the calf, but it provides a surplus and willingly allows that surplus to be taken from it for the benefit of humanity. That's why it's revered, because it reflects the real nature or the ideal nature of the human being. It is very important, if you happen to be a cow, it is very important that you do feed your calf. You can't say, well, I'm just going to give it all away and let the calf die. It is important to feed the calf because you are mother to that calf. But the surplus, you can't retain the surplus. The surplus becomes poison to you. If I said to you, to eat more than you need, can that do you good? And I say, did you ever overeat? That's been very polite. <laughs> so, on those occasions that you have overeaten, did it bring any joy? Did it increase your health? Not at all. It's a painful experience. To sleep too much also doesn't refresh you because you wake up exhausted if you spend too many hours in the bed. To work too hard reduces your creativity. It will ultimately reduce your wealth, in fact. So, once you lose the measure, there is a decline. Now, we accept that with regard to sleep, food, work, and all these things. But there is one area in life which we think is an exception to the rule. We think that having too much money will not be a burden to me. And even if it is a burden, I'll carry it. <laughs> so, so, but I can say this to you, that having too much money is as miserable as eating too much. And I, I've told the story a million times, but I'll just say it, that there was a man that I advised, this is a long time back, I advised him, helped him sell his shareholding in a particular company. And it so happened that he got a lot more money than he anticipated getting. So there was quite an amount of wealth came his way. And it meant that he never had to work. And he was quite, he might have been in his early 50s. And there was certainly enough wealth if he lived till he was 120. And he, he told me about all his plans that he was going to do now. And how he was going to live a glorious life. And I met him about six months later. And I, I called him Fred now. I said, Fred, how are things? And he said, terrible. And I said, why? And he said, interest rates have plummeted. <laughs> Deposit interest rates have plummeted. Now, I can tell you this, deposit and interest rate plummet have never bothered me. Right? I don't have enough on deposit to be upset about deposit and interest rate plummeting. But if you have a lot of money, then you have your own unique problems, like deposit and interest rates plummeting. And you'll have to have a stockbroker, which is a terrible thing to have in your life. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's nearly worse than being married to a solicitor. Right? So, 
the key is to have what you need. And the Shankaracharya was asked this question because people always throw out then this sort of commonest thing that we're all wearing, you know, a plain grey suit and we're all eating mash or something like that. It's not like that. What the Shankaracharya said is if you want to find the measure in your life, and we just take it as regards clothes, applies to everything. Each one of us has to find our own measure, and your measure will be different than your measure. What is appropriate to you will be different to you, to you, to you, etc. But what he said is if you have, say, eight suits, let's say it's a man and he has eight suits, give away one of your suits. And if you can live your life with dignity and respect and fulfil your roles with seven suits, excellent. And then give away another one in altruism. Give it away. And if you can still have dignity and respect and fulfil all the roles of life, then six is the measure for you. And in that way, find your measure. Now, when it starts to impede... So, if you had a wife and four children, and you decided to give away too much money so that you couldn't feed the children and the spouse, well, then you've lost the measure again. But what you'll find is this, is that most of our accumulation is effectively a hoarding. It's a hoarding. And it's a holding out of use. My mother died, she was never richer than on the day she died. She hoarded, now not that she had a vast amount of wealth, but she hoarded her wealth out of a fear that she might live till she was 149. You know? And who knows what inflation will be like in 2050. Right? So she kept on trying to save more and more. But it was based on fear. And what was the fear? The fear was that she would become dependent. That she would be dependent. Now what I tried to do is to say to her is that she would always be cared for always be cared for, that the four children, of which I was one, would care for her, that she would never be in want. But in her case, she couldn't transcend the fear. So whatever wealth she had was held on deposit, which is a ridiculous way to hold wealth. And then when she died, it's forcibly distributed. It was useless. The thing to do, if you want to be cared for in your old age, invest in your children. Don't trust a stockbroker or an insurance company. (laughs) That's the way to do it. Anyway, to go back to your fundamental point. Your fundamental point is correct. And, but we can often confine altruism to the idea of distributing wealth in the form of money. A bigger and better word is to serve your fellow man. So when the waiter brings you coffee, serve the waiter by acknowledging the coffee and thanking them for the coffee. And if it's excellent coffee, tell them on the way out, by the way, the coffee was superb. Then you are serving the waiter and serve everybody, without exception. Bus conductor, the person on the street, everybody. Serve them. When you look where you're going on a busy street, you are serving everybody else on the street. You shouldn't be bumping into people, because there are lots of people on the street. So I think service is a better word. If by altruism you mean serving at all levels, well then altruism is fine. But not confined to wealth. It simplifies it that it's one single direction that everybody can focus Absolutely. on. It pulls all beliefs, everything. It's the fi- it's a solution. You know, it simplifies it because self-service is vague. Uh, but if everything is measured against altruism, let's say a judge said, "Oh, well, that's not altruistic." You know, everything is measured against that. You know, it would be the solution for the world. Yes. Again, without entering a debate, I just say to you that the word service doesn't have to cause any confusion. There just needs to be a true understanding of what service is. The mother serves the child in all the ways she does, and the child 
serve the mother through loving, honouring and respecting the mother. It can be simplified if we really look at the world. You outlined all the realities of life in inverted commas, the way life is for most of us. Then you, at the back end of your conversation, outlined what we potentially could do about it. I personally find that Having listened to you, I'll be fired up for the next 24 hours and I will put into practice a lot of the suggestions that you made at the back of your coat and then I'll fall into reality again. I suppose we're all like that. So how do you re-trigger yourself every now and then? I know it's kind of an obvious question, but it's a difficult thing to do. No, it's extremely difficult and it's the challenge for all of us. What you have to do effectively, there's a sort of a sequence but effectively, what you have to do, you have to appreciate the need. That's the first thing. That there is a real need for me to wake up or for this life to change. If you don't really appreciate the need, then you get a 24-hour effect. And what it really is, it's an environmental effect. So you attend a talk, it's inspiring or whatever, you're uplifted by it, but you walk out of the environment and then it all subsides again. But if you appreciate the need, then that need stays with you in your mind and heart. It's like losing weight. You can aspire to lose weight, but you won't lose weight until, first of all, you appreciate the need for you to say to lose weight. So appreciation of the need is the first bit. The second thing that's required, then, is a decision that you're going to do something about it. You appreciate, then you decide. So you put your being behind it. The third thing you do is you form a resolution. So like, no chocolates will ever be eaten again. It needs a wording. This is why the great thing about the marriage ceremony is the wording. Not the dress or the music or anything like that. It's the fact that there is a very precise wording which in ideal circumstances both people say fully and truthfully. They bind themselves to those words. So you need to have a resolution, a well-formulated resolution. And the fourth thing then you need to do is you need to practice. I'm just going to give you an example which I've given before. But I took up meditation 36 or 37 years ago. And I took it up because I noticed the people who were already meditating, had a stillness and a quietness about them, which I sadly lacked. And I wanted that. But the impulse was partially envious and partially ambitious. Right? So, anyway, I take up meditation. And three or four years later, I find that I'm not practicing regularly. In fact, I thought I had been practicing regularly. So I decided to look back on the previous week and I ticked off, you know, morning, evening, morning, evening. And I came up with 10 out of 14 practices. And I said, well, 10 out of 14 is irregular, not regular. And I was disgusted at this. This was after four years of meditating. So then I said to myself, okay, and I say I was eating three times a day. So in the last seven days, how many meals did I have? And I found I had 21. Interesting enough, I hadn't missed any. So, I was a regular eater and an irregular meditator. This image just came into the mind. And I had, an, and it, it was, I just allowed the mind to run with the image. And I was presenting myself at the pearly gates with a fat body and a thin soul. 
And I said, would I be happy to present myself at the pearly gates and say, listen, I never missed a meal, but I only partially meditated or meditated irregularly. And I just hated that image, that this would be the summation of my life in that regard. So I decided I am going to be a regular meditator. I had some concerns about my ability to stick to it. So I combined my love of food and the need to meditate in the following way. The practice that I used to miss when I did miss meditation was in the evening. So I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to give you an instruction now and irrespective of if I come crawling at the door gnashing my teeth, you are to ignore it. You are to stick with the instruction I give you now. Right? And the instruction now is you are never to feed me unless I have meditated. No matter what I say, you are not to feed me. And you are always to ask me. So, my wife for about 10 or 12 years or would say, have you meditated? And I would say, no, I'm going to meditate now, right? Or I would say, yes, I have meditated. But she would not, I mean, my wife does the cooking, she would not prepare the evening meal for me unless I had meditated. And because I loved my food, that was enough motivation to meditate. So, after a number of years, the practice was perfectly established as a regular practice. So, do you get a sense of that? So, aspiration is not good enough. Or, I'd love that to be the way I live. It's more serious than that. And the first thing is the appreciation of the need. Because without the appreciation of the need, you won't appreciate the need to change. So, therefore, everything just runs along. So, that's the sequence. And you'll find that in any major achievements in your life, or any major changes in your life, that sequence has applied. There would be an appreciation of the need, a decision, a resolution, and practice. And one last picture to fill out. What you need, or, and I've told people this before, what you need to decide is that you are a meditator. And a meditator is somebody who meditates. That's what they do. Like a married man is married. That's what he is. So a meditator meditates. If you don't decide that you are, say, a meditator, then twice a day you're tortured with the decision whether you will meditate or not. Does that make sense? But if you decide you are a meditator, you don't have to make any decision. Like, I don't decide every day or every evening to go home to my wife. I've decided I am a married man and I am married to her. So there's no decision. Imagine if every day you said, I wonder now, Hmm, interesting. Will I go home tonight or will I not? You could very easily not go home. But if you make the decision, it's resolved once and for all in your life. You should take a look at your life. You Maybe you know, tomorrow or over the weekend, you should take a look at your life. And are you happy with it? And project it on 40 years or whatever length of time you think you have. And say, well, if it was to continue as it is... Will I die satisfied having lived like that? And if you're not satisfied, well then change it. Change it with a, an irrevocable decision, formulate it into a resolution, and then practice. And then it's a, you're a bit like the recovering alcoholic. No matter how many times you fall off the wagon, you don't abandon the fact that you will no longer drink. It's not like a diet, the Asherah broke, I forget about the whole blooming thing. 
It's not like that. Today is a new day. Never count what you did not do, but always look to what you will do or can do. Does that help at all? Yes, indeed. Thanks very much. And I'm, I'm delighted that you've uh, identified my wife as a person I can blame when it doesn't work. Actually. Well, well, again, just to develop this, because this actually is very serious in a way. It is extremely difficult to live a good or great life, and I don't mean a world-famous life, but a, a, let's say a good and great life, without the companionship of a wife or a husband. Very, very, very difficult. People can do it, but they need to have immense personal strength to do it. Marriage has many, many bases for it, but one of them is a spiritual basis. So there is a spiritual marriage, or is a spiritual aspect, a very strong spiritual aspect to marriage. And the idea is that we're not always strong and resolved in everything. But when you are weak, then your wife should be strong. And when she is weak, you should be strong. So you complement each other. It's a bit like this, that you take on the responsibility of your wife becoming a sage and she takes on the responsibility of you becoming a sage. And if you do that, then what you'll find is that life won't be intermittent. It won't be success, failure, success, failure. The willingness to work together as a single team would mean that there will be steady and excellent evolution of being or progress or whatever way you want to phrase it. We don't actually use husband and wife enough in life. We don't use it enough. It's an outstanding institution. I mean, just it is just so incredible. It's so helpful for the individual. Just take it in a non-spiritual way. There are times that you might be you know, fed up or a bit miserable or things are getting on top of you. Well, at that point in time, it's the responsibility of the wife who's not in that state to lift you out of that state. And another time, she would be down in the mouth and it is your responsibility to uplift her. And it's not always the same, so I'll just give you one. The male nature and the female nature are quite different. So they have different strengths and different weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of the man is that he's lazy. He's fundamentally a lazy being. And he's also, he tends to dream a lot. Tends to dream a lot. So he doesn't notice things. Like the toast is burning in the kitchen, right? Or he doesn't notice the leak. Or the fact that the grass is far too long or things like that. The wife's responsibility, or the female's responsibility, is to, first of all, to stop him being lazy. Not by nagging him into action, but by pointing out the need for certain actions. And she has to do it in a persuasive way, not a critical way, right? And any woman worth her salt knows how to get a man to do what he needs to do. The woman doesn't suffer from laziness at all. So, uh, the difficulty for a man is to start the job. But once he starts, then it's right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to paint the entire house. You only ask him to paint the ceiling on the, in the kitchen. He says, no, no, I'll do it all. <laughs> right? Now I've started. And he goes down to Woody's and he arms himself with brushes that go behind radiators. And, <laughs> and he comes back like a Rambo painter, you know. <laughs> says, right. We're going to paint everything. Which is fantastic, right? And all you have to do is supply him with incessant cups of tea and all that sort of stuff. And praise. Ooh, I love that kid. 
Oh, that ceiling is so nice. That'll keep him going, right, until he's finished it. It'll take him another 15 years before he's motivated again to do it. That's the, that's the way he works. He works intermittently, but then incredibly aggressively. And the rest of the time, he's just lying watching rugby on the television. So that's the male. So what the woman does is she stops him being lazy and she points out the need because she's very in touch. The man is always wondering whether, you know, should America ever have gone into Iraq? You know, that's what he's thinking. The toast is burning up, but he's, that's what he's thinking. The woman is not in the least interested in Americans going into Iraq. She's wondering, you know, when are we getting the new fridge? You know, or whatever it is. So she's much more practical-minded or grounded, a much more grounded individual. However, she does have a flaw, as you might imagine. Right? Her difficulty is not starting to work. Her difficulty is stopping work. So, you sometimes will find a wife, you know, out, you know, let's say in the kitchen, ironing away at 12, I, I prefer to get it finished, type of thing, you know, while you're in there watching, you know, reruns of or something or other. The man's responsibility is to stop his wife being exhausted. So, whenever you find an exhausted wife, you blame the husband. And whenever you find a lazy husband, you blame the wife. She hasn't been doing her job. Is that okay? You recognize this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And good luck with the painting over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. But you see, it, but, but in all seriousness, if people were just willing, if they knew what marriage was about, and, I, and whether it is just a lifetime commitment, I don't necessarily mean a ceremonial marriage, if they just understood what the benefits of marriage was, it would elevate us so much, we would hold it in the highest regard. It can do so much for an individual. The male is an incomplete human being and the female is an incomplete human being. The male nature and the female nature willing to work together, then first of all you can transcend everything and there's nothing you cannot face. The promise that you make, let's say you were getting married, right? And you said to me, what sort of vow should I make to my wife? Never promise her that you will make her happy. Because that's not within your power. Does that make sense? Terrible things may befall you which you have no control over. So you never promise that you'll make another person happy. But what you do promise them is, I will stand by your side. And never, ever, ever leave you to face anything on your own. That's what each person should promise. Side by side, we will face life together. And if you do that side by side, nothing can defeat you. You can bury children, you can face financial ruin, you can lose everything so-called. But side by, as long as one person will stand by you faithfully, you can face anything. And then you're never afraid again. You're not afraid of what life might throw at you or anything like that at all. So there's tremendous benefits in the male-female or the marital relationship. At all levels. All levels. So one should always take it very seriously. It is an incredible privilege if somebody says to you, 
I will stay with you for 50, you know, say the 50 years of marriage. That is an incredible thing. No employer will guarantee you 50 years of employment. Your children will be off to Australia. They won't even look backwards. But a wife or a husband says, no, for better for worse, you and me. I don't know, there was a lovely, I've told the story before, but Arthur Ashe, do you remember Arthur Ashe? Uh, very well-known, first black tennis player of note, and he also won Wimbledon as well. But before there was a strong knowledge of AIDS and HIV, as it turned out, when he was in his late 30s, he had to undergo a heart operation. There was some defect in his heart. And unfortunately, he was infected with HIV, which became AIDS and then he died subsequently. But anyway, when he discovered that he had HIV and it was all explained the significance to him, he resolved to set his wife free. So he's lying in the bed, he's been told this, and you know, they had a fantastic relationship, and he said to his wife, he said, look, I've contracted HIV, and these are the implications, so I want you to go free. And her reply was, you and me, babe, you and me. Isn't that just fantastic to know that no matter what, somebody will stand by your side? So, it's a great, great, great institution. And the interesting thing is it's only designed for human beings. So, pussycats do not have to get married. They also don't have to go to the International Film Centre to entertain their uh, prospective spouse, <laughs> which is one big advantage. So... Hi, you said at the age of two you begin to fall asleep. I'm just wondering as a parent, how do you help your child stay awake? What you do is you keep telling him or her the truth about themselves. In the School of Philosophy in Dublin, there's a children's school which is associated with the School of Philosophy. And the children are told that they are pure, perfect and complete. And they're told that again and again and again people who have studied philosophy and studied the whole art and science of parenting, that's what they would say to their children. So I would have said it to my own children. You are pure, perfect and complete. You are consciousness, knowledge and bliss. You are ever free. You are the embodiment of love. So you can say that to them again and again and again because after two they begin to deny it. They say, oh I'm useless at this. And they come home from school and say, nobody likes me, you know, all that sort of stuff. You say, not true at all. My daughter, I used to say to her, she, at one stage she got concerned that would anybody ever love her. I said, look, the only problem we're going to have is to get them to form a queue, an orderly queue. I said, I'll take care of that bit. <laughs> I said, you have no idea how beautiful you are. So you tell them that. They may not be blessed now with physical beauty. But that doesn't stop them being a beautiful person. And so you tell them, you know, every child is beautiful, is a beautiful person. And every child has immense potential, and every child has a particular role to play. And some of us are meant to serve others, and people are meant to command others. It doesn't make any difference. If in a play or a film you get to be a general, and somebody else gets to be a soldier, both would be paid the same amount by the director. It's just a game. People should never worry about what role you have to play. Just play it brilliantly. So you remind them of that. You remind them of their inner worth and their real worth. 
and you give them great values. So, but a simple decision that every human being has to make. And you can have discussions about this. You can say, you know, a human being has the choice of, will I live for myself and mine? I.e. maybe husband, wife, children, etc. Like that. Will I live for others or will I live for all? That's a big decision to make. And you would encourage them to live for all. You say, this is how the Mother Teresa's of this world come into being, or the Nelson Mandela's, or Martin Luther King Jr. These are people who didn't live for themselves and a small family unit, but at least lived at the level of nation, and some went beyond nation. So you, you keep on reminding them of their greatness, and all these wonderful things. And never let them deny it. Never let them deny it. And if you do that, now they will deny it, by the way, so that's, you know, that's the way it is. They will deny it, and they'll vigorously deny it from about 12 onwards. You know, don't give me that philosophy rubbish, you know, type stuff. And they'll, with a very healthy degree of venom, they will deny it from 12 until about 26, around then. 12, 24, 26. You just have to be patient. They want to reject everything, that's fine. What they're really trying to do is to find themselves. And they do need to find themselves. We don't want them as poor imitations of you. But in their attempt to find themselves, they reject everything. The bad advice and the good advice, which is a bit of a tragedy. But at around 26, they begin to start to listen again. They realize you're not as bad as they thought you were. Then they become grateful. So, it's at many levels. If you're a religious person or a spiritual person, never let it deny its own divinity. Never let it think it's a physical being or a mental being or an emotional being. You can say to it, you are a spiritual being and you've been granted three... No, you would, I'm using language, adult language now. but You are a spiritual being and you have three bodies to travel in. A physical body, a mental body and an emotional body. Let them always know that. And while you may cut or damage the physical body, you cannot damage the spiritual body. It is always pure, perfect and complete. And that is who you are. And the idea is that you use your body, mind and heart so that it reflects the purity, perfection and completeness of your spiritual body. Not deny it. Now, you'll find your own words to speak to the child. It's very important that you do that. If you don't, the child quickly forgets everything. And again, I've told this story before, but it's such a good story. I, I like telling it. A bit like the child, one joke's enough for me type of thing. And you may have heard this story, but it's a story of a... I'll make up the ages because I can't remember the, precisely the details. But it's a four-year-old boy with a father and a mother. And a daughter is born into the family... And the boy has a fixation with trying to get into the bedroom where the girl is on his own when the parents aren't around and they don't know for why. Is that okay? But the parents are concerned that he's insanely jealous and that he'll just go in there and stick his fingers into her eyes. and all that. So they forbid him. They won't let him do this. Anyway, curiosity gets the better of them. And they have this baby monitoring thing, you know, one in the sitting room and one in the bedroom of the daughter. And they let the little boy loose. He's downstairs, but they let him loose. And sure enough, within a couple of minutes, he's very quietly gone up the stairs, opened the door of the bedroom where the little girl is. And he goes in, and he goes over to the cot where she is, and he leans over, and he whispers to his little sister, 
will you start telling me about God because I am already beginning to forget see you knew once you knew who you were you knew everything you knew the perfection of your own parents what ages are your children? four, All right. well you might still be able to do it and that would be, that's excellent but when it was six months old you knew its perfection you knew it from the depths of your heart and your child did know it but already is beginning to forget so you have to act as its reminder and as I said albeit it will deviate it will come back think of it like planting seeds you're planting seeds in the heart of the child and one day they'll fructify and guide that child you talked about the chatter in your head and I know you're talking about turning off the chatter in your head and living in silence and all the rest of it, but are there any tips? One of the reasons there is so much chatter is because we believe in it. Because we believe in it, we listen to it, that encourages it to keep speaking. If your mother was talking to you and you weren't listening to her, after a very long time, she would fall silent. (laughs) So, the idea is to ignore it. You don't feed it with your own consciousness, your own attention. The more you listen to it, the more it weakens you. And the weaker you become, the more dominant it becomes. So in the case of a mad person, they are now dominated by that voice. Or the serial killer. The serial killer always has a voice which tells them, slash that person's throat. All right? You have enough discrimination left that if your voice did say to you, slash that person's throat, you would ignore it. But you only ignore what it says in the extreme. The vast, vast majority of what it says, you accept as true. So when it says, you're stupid or you're not as good as you think you are, you say, okay, that's the way it is. But this is not true. So the key is to ignore it. And then the other things I said, primarily meditation. What meditation does is it brings the being to rest. And this voice can only operate in agitation. So it doesn't operate while you're asleep. Because you're in deep rest while asleep. If you can attain the same deep rest while awake, the voice simply won't operate. You don't have to kill the voice. In fact, the more you attempt to kill it, the more it's going to speak to you. It's going to persuade you it's its best friend. So it's like you don't have to kill a wave. What you do is you bring calm to the sea. So if you bring a calmness or a quietude to your mind, then this voice subsides. So that's it. You describe very articulately the difficulty with the human condition and the trawl we're in. And you're suggesting a solution to become awake, which is understandable in as you put it but why are we in that condition like in the greater scheme of things is that maybe not part of a process that we have to use understandably it would be better to use it by being somewhat detached and understanding why it's there but you didn't make any suggestion that it's part of a greater process no you don't have to be in that state it's not part of a natural process if you take human beings as an organism that are not yeah. that long in existence and there are many other and yes. other dimensions there may be other beings 
part of a an existence that's in, infinite. So we're a very small part of the whole game, if you like. Yes. So it is on the cards that the game we're playing is an essential part of a greater picture. Yes, but well, we're and playing so it very badly. We may be playing it badly, yes, but yes. you didn't refer to the possibility that it's a necessary part of a greater process. No, it's not. If you take any play, if you take something like Monopoly, when somebody is cheating, they're not playing Monopoly anymore. They're cheating. We're cheating. We're not playing the human game. We were not designed to be miserable or in a prison cell of our own making. We were designed for freedom. That's what every master teacher, every great sage has said. It may be all pervasive, or virtually all pervasive, but that doesn't make it natural. The fact that the Irish people in their droves bought Bulgarian apartments doesn't mean it was a good idea. It just means it was an all-pervasive ignorance. I agree with you that the, the sages and the, the great people of the world, they were saying what you were saying. We are in somewhat in trouble. But none of them asked the question, why are we in trial? They just said, that's the situation, we should try and improve ourselves. No, you're right, they didn't ask why, because the why question is a useless question. The why question is only asked by a man who's asleep. And the answer is useless to him. And when he wakes up, he doesn't have the why question anymore. The way the Shankaracharya puts it is, he says, it's not important to know how ignorance begins. All that's important is to know how it ends. And when it does end for you, then you'll know how it begins. But if you ask how it begins while you're still in ignorance, you won't understand. A great sage called Ramana Maharshi put it, wake up and see if the question still remains. That was his advice to all his disciples. Wake up first and see if the question remains. And when you're awakened, then you will know whether it is part of a natural process or not. But what the sages say is that it's not. It is unnatural for man to be asleep. He is a conscious being designed for wakefulness. Let's assume that we buy into your thesis. The message that you've been promulgating today is addressed to me as a person. That's right. But each of us is enmeshed in kind of collaborative network of people, yes. either through marriage or through occupation or various partnerships, that, some of which give us a great deal of pleasure, satisfaction, love, some of which cause great aggravation at times and so on. And to embark on this journey without consultation with ones, it could cause alarm and disquiet, couldn't it? Or, or, and it could or make delight. It, <laughs> I'm off, dear. And she I smiles for the first time in ten years. I suspect the delight a little slow in coming. The early steps might prove to be. And what, what do you think about, if you decide to embark on this, to have some kind of collaborative effort? At least with those significant others in your life, that it would be worth, let's all have a go at this and see how it works. Would that be a good Yes, it, it, let me say this. this, let's call it this journey. This journey does not involve the abandonment of others. It involves the abandonment of ignorance. If you tonight go home and you say to your wife, I am going to abandon or make endeavors to abandon my ignorance, 
she will be delighted. <laughs> because she has suffered it for a long, long time. <laughs> what you are abandoning on this journey is misery, limitation, doubt, fear, worry, anxiety, all these things. This does not separate you from other people. The happy person, the liberated person, is always surrounded by people. It's the miserable one who's on his own. You will not find, as I said, that it leads to isolation or abandonment of others at all. In fact, what it will allow you to do is to play the roles more fully. If a person goes on this journey, and they happen to be, let's say, male, then they will become a better husband, a better friend, a better father, a better son, a better client, a better businessman, whatever it is. All the relationships improve. It's like you become a better actor, so that whatever role befalls you, you play it now more gloriously, more fully, more delightfully. You delight both the audience and yourself with your acting. More than that? For you, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you want any more punishment? <laughs> As a role model, is there anybody in our generation that you would say is very much awake? Who could we look up to? Well, first of all, it would be dreadful for me to judge the entire of mankind. Um, if I just take my own experience... First of all, I have been blessed to meet some remarkable, they happen to be males, so I met some remarkable men. So the man who founded the School of Philosophy, Leon McLaren, was the most remarkable man that I got to know. I cannot think of any quality in me that exceeds any quality in him. So it is very useful for me to hold him in mind when I aspire to become more enlightened or whatever. Maybe I'll tell this story. I have met the Shankaracharya, the current Shankaracharya. So I was, again, extremely fortunate to meet him. And many would say that this is a fully realized man. So this is not a good man or a very good man. This is a man who has completed the journey. So there's no more journey for him. Anyway, I happened to meet him. And I'm just going to tell you one instant which blew my mind. Because then I realized that this man and his knowledge are not two separate things. And he can never be separated from his wisdom. He is the wisdom. And it pours out of him. So I meet him. And when you meet a sage in India, it's a very formal sort of occasion. There's a lot of sermon in all of that. But I meet him and, and I'm full of reverence for this great, great man. And I feel, God, isn't it amazing that I'm here in front of him? So I'm at my, my best behavior, spine straight, kindness in my eyes, <laughs> as still as I possibly can be. And he has a couple of secretaries, right, male secretaries. And one of the secretaries had a mobile phone. While he's answering a question, it may be a question I put to him or somebody else put to him, the mobile phone goes off and the guy answers it. And he texts back, you see? And in me there is absolute shock and horror 
that here is a sage speaking and there's some guy saying, yeah, I'll see you in Starbucks in 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And there's irritation that the man behaves this way in the presence of, let's call it a holy man. Anyway, Shankaracharya completely unmoved, completely unmoved and continued to deliver his answer. And then, say, ten minutes later, there was another question, and the phone went off a second time. And the Shankarachari was looking at me, and he saw my eyes go to the phone. Now, this is the only reason he acted. He was completely undisturbed, but he saw that I was disturbed. Now, I'm going to just move this, right? So, if you can imagine, he's sitting in the lotus position, you know the lotus position with the leg, right? And he's sitting like this. And he looks at the young man who has the mobile phone, and he does this. And that was the only thing that moved in him. And the young man turned the phone off. But it was the only thing that moved in him. Now what I realised in that moment is, there's so much moving in me. If I was giving a talk, or I am giving a talk, and a mobile phone goes off, I'm thinking, oh, fuck. God's sake, these bloody idiots, right? <laughs> you know, who are my own true self? <laughs> right? And there'll be an awful lot of movement. And ten minutes after the phone has been put on, there would still be agitation, and I might be making up a notice. You'd be thinking, you know, <laughs> you, know, you, know you know, does that make sense? But the only thing that uh, that moved in him was his finger. And that was the only thing that needs to move when you want a phone to be turned off. So the efficiency. He was the embodiment of stillness. But when he spoke, he spoke loudly with big laughter and everything like that. But just to maybe go back to what you said. When you spoke to him, when you asked him a question, there was nothing going on inside of him. And he simply receives the question fully. Now, if you ask me a question, my mind starts to think of an answer. Is that okay? But with him, nothing is happening when the question is being received. And then it's as if it goes to a very, very, very deep place. And then an answer is drawn out. Full and glorious and magnificent and imbued with wisdom. And then it comes to an end. And he goes back to that stillness. He's my role model. All right? Now, what I would say is this. Okay, I I was very fortunate to meet this man, and maybe not many get to meet him. Rather than align yourself to a particular person, because that's very difficult to find the one who has completed the journey, but what you will find is many, many people who exemplify great qualities. So, for example, Mandela and forgiveness. Martin Luther King Jr. and his desire for equality for all. Mother Teresa and her desire that no man, no human being, should die degraded and alone. These are fantastic qualities. Forget about famous people. There might be somebody down the street who is the embodiment of kindness or consideration or gentleness or something like that. What you will find is many people who exemplify qualities which are much more developed in them than they are in you. And so my advice, unless you meet the one, is to look to the particular quality of that person and seek to emulate it.
Can you talk a bit about the two voices that you, yeah. you were saying we have two voices, one more helpful than the other? Yeah, well, I'm going to differentiate. It's a little bit more than one is more helpful than the other. What there is, there is your true self. This man there a few rows back spoke about being made in the image of God. Well, that's a religious concept and it's fine. Let's say we just accepted that as true. Let's say we accepted that there is a God and that God is all-wise, all-loving, perfect, etc., etc. If we're made in the image of God, then we are wise, loving, etc., etc. However, man is capable of creating a false self, an image in his mind of who he is. Say, an anorexic will do it. An insane person will do it. We call ourselves sane, but we're just slightly less mad than what the people we call insane. All right? Because we form an image of ourselves which is not true. We think we are small, insignificant, fearful, limited, and all of these things. This is a collection of ideas and feelings in the mind and heart. That collection of ideas and feelings speaks certain things. And it says things like, you'll never be able to succeed at that. You're no good at that. That person couldn't possibly love you. All sorts of limiting ideas. And that voice is the voice of the ego, which is your false self. Then there is your true self, and that only speaks the truth to you. How can you differentiate, how do you know it's not the false self lying to you? Because that is possible. The main way that the Shankracharya has told us is that the voice of the ego is full of preference and judgment. Now, let's say the voice of the self or the voice of truth would be full of love, not preference or judgment. So let's say you're a mother and you have two children. If you are a true mother, you will not prefer one child to the other. No true mother can prefer one child to another because motherhood demands an equality of love to all the offspring. So, wherever you see preference and judgment, you can rest assured that's not the voice of truth. Where a voice tells you that this person is more important than another person, that's a lie. No hum- not, one human being is not important than another. Every human being is equally important. And the law recognises this. So, whether you happen to be a prime minister or, say, a road sweeper, you will be treated equally under the law where the law operates well. They're the two voices. And one of the voices is, as I said, it's full of fear, doubt, greed, excitement. It's what gets you into all sorts of trouble. It's what prevents you availing of your opportunities. All of that. And the other voice, it's a much quieter voice. And actually, maybe I'll just say something about that. The ego is quite a loud voice. Raucous voice and always talking. The other voice is a very quiet voice. It only whispers to you. And unless you're quiet, you can't hear it. And it is to that voice that you should put your real questions. I'll just take, say, an emotional situation. Say, you wish to know whether you should marry somebody or not. So there's a question in your mind. Is this, in my case, is this the woman for you? The voice of the ego will say, well, she's good looking. I think there's a bit of money in the family. Um, (laughs) I hope her mother never comes to live with us, so we'll put that on that side. It will be a voice full of preferences and judgments. And the other voice will just say, marry her. It won't give you an explanation.
you won't need an explanation because it speaks the truth. Or it'll say, don't, it might, it might also say, <laughs> but it won't say things like run a mile or, you know, or are you crazy? It doesn't speak like that. To help you now, at a very practical level, whenever you find a big decision, whatever you consider to be big now, it doesn't make any difference if other people would consider it small, but if it's something that you think is a big decision, what you do is don't analyze it to death. Just become very still and ask the question of yourself. Should I marry this man? Should I buy this house? Or should I change my career? But become very, very, very still and then put the question openly. Don't hope it's going to give you the following answer. <laughs> it must be a totally open question. And whatever it answers, accept it. But it won't give you all the reasoning behind it. Is that okay? Okay. We shall leave it at that. Thank you very much.